invite you to turn with me. Mark's record of the Gospel, chapter 9. Our text consists of one verse, but I will read the context for us as we begin, beginning in verse 14 of Mark chapter 9. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it had cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried out and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he rose. It's 
since the days in which the Son of Man tabernacled among men, countless volumes have been written concerning the miracles that so conspicuously marked his earthly ministry. John, the beloved disciple, in fact, closed all the gospel records with this startling affirmation that the whole world could not contain all the books if all the master's works could be written down. And of all his works, that scene on Golgotha's hill accepted, that seemed to most captivate our attention, are those in which he puts forth his sovereign power on behalf of the deaf, the blind, the withered, the leper, the bleeding, the impotent, the demoniac, and yes, even the dead. And of all those manifold accounts in which while we have read and know assuredly the outcome, yet we never fail to be carried along in astonishment through the entire narrative because it is, of course, the inspired record of the working of God manifest in the flesh. Of all those manifold accounts, I say, none exceeds in wonder and in pathos the scene here recorded in minute detail by the evangelist. Look at it again with me. There is a desperate father, a tormented son, powerless disciples, a carnal crowd, mocking scribes. And oh, in the midst of it all stands the master who in a phrase that I borrow from Dr. Watts, his eternal thought is moving on his undisturbed affairs. If that day in Bethany, when three brief words brought a four-day man out of his tomb, if that day was the most astounding of his miracles, which John attests. Yet this day, this scene was no less wonderful for the deliverance that was wrought, the authority that was demonstrated, and for the unbelief that was overcome. And it was just that which made this scene so stark in its contrast. I say again to you, unbelief. Dear saint, your soul and mine cannot fail to be shocked by it. As you read again and again the account, shocked by its depth, shocked by its power, shocked by its pervasiveness, shocked most of all, because in your own experience, do you not? You feel its cold breath constantly blowing 
upon the few and faint embers of your own faith, nearly extinguishing any warmth you feel and any light you see and any hope you cherish that you have indeed believed to the saving of your soul. Behold with me now again how it casts an iron shroud over every part of this desperate moment, crushing to the earth the whole miserable assembly. Look at the disciples. Only days ago, devils by number were subject to them. Do you not remember Luke 10 and 17? Master, even the devils are subject unto us. They came. But now, one devil alone withstands nine apostles. The bitter testimony of the Father concerning them is summed up in one word. Powerless. They, he said, they could not. Why? Why, they asked the Lord privately. Surely his answer must have gripped their hearts with all the overwhelming strength of that omnipotence that spoke the words. Because of your unbelief. Your unbelief. But then there were the scribes. Yes, the Lord's antagonists were there. Who from the earliest days of his ministry and no doubt energized and inflamed by some of the accomplices of the spirit that presently possessed this boy. Theirs was a raucous spirit and species of unbelief. Suggested by their own hatred and strengthened by that demonic malice, they impeached the master mocked his disciples, tormented the Father, and like the religious charlatans they were, probably moved within the crowd, working it to sow their pernicious seeds of discord and doubt. Well, what of that crowd, though? That crowd so often near, but never really following. The crowd the Lord had admonished more than a year ago, for being perishing loaf seekers rather than bread of life seekers. Israelites whose hearts were wholly unchanged from Elijah's day when on Carmel they halted between two opinions. The crowd that one day would were ready to make him king and the next day called him a madman. The crowd that would finally gather at the court of their Roman overlords with shouts of crucify. Yes, here was a multitude of unbelief. Unbelief born in hearts that were incurably mundane. Mundane, I say. Who, like the taproot of a great tree, strikes ever deeper and deeper into the earth, seeking its nourishment only there, whose character Paul described with tears 
as the enemies of Christ who mind earthly things. Yes, but even the Father was captive to this unbelief. His was an unbelief of quiet despair. From the years of his son's torment that he watched helplessly. Now, now we come seeking help. But to his great disappointment, he finds no Jesus. The disciples there, he implores to help. But they fail. The scribes gloat. The crowd makes a public spectacle of the boy's miseries. In the midst of the throng, surrounded by defeated disciples, sneering scribes, and a gawking crowd, he is profoundly alone. This is his son. His only son, Luke tells us. And all that remains is for him to watch and suffer the tortures in his own soul for a son that to all appearances is insensible of his own appalling condition. Yes, the whole scene is beclouded with unbelief and sunk so deep in despondency that hardly a ray of light even Would you know the full measure of it? Saint, sinner, pause and examine your own heart as you listen to the Lord's verdict on us all. Recorded in verse 19. Oh, entire generation of unfaith. O offspring of unbelief, would you plumb its depths even further? Thrice, thrice I say here, the Creator Himself is pressed to this lamentation over this people. Twice in verse 19 and again in verse 21, He issues this sad, question. How long? How long? How long? Messiah! Messiah is present to their very eyes and yet the sentence pronounced by Moses almost 40 generations prior is fulfilled in their own hearing. They are, as Deuteronomy 32 and verse 20 says, Children in whom is no faith. Oh, how dismal the image on this tapestry when every thread of it is spun from the fibers of unbelief. Look to yourselves, all of you. Look to yourselves and see the same image reflected in the mirror of your own soul. And we give a greater affront to the king, then that censure 
with which he arraigned the loaf seekers in John 6. You have seen me and believe not. My dear friend, saint or sinner be you, if you are brought just now to the brink of despair, and if you see neither the wicked gate, or if the hole is so dark you cannot even say with Mr. Bunyan Pilgrim, I think I see a little light, then there is another word for you. And it is most gloriously the Master's own voice that speaks it. Bring him to me. Bring him unto me. Let it rejoice your ears and echo through every hall and passage of the castle in your own man's soul. Bring him to me. Could any word have thrilled the soul, the sightless son of Timaeus, more than this word in that day? Be of good cheer. Rise. He calleth thee. Now, now, now amidst all the gloom, Emmanuel has issued an edict. Bring him. Bring him to me. But perhaps you missed the change of scene here. For the Master himself has now withdrawn a distance with the giving of that command. As he did so often, he would not work the works the Father had sent him to do before a mixed multitude of malicious religionists and the merely curious. Perhaps even the disciples remained behind. Perhaps from shame for their failure. Perhaps from a look from the Savior. Whatever the circumstance, once they had brought the child, verse 20, all seemed to have retired leaving three alone in the valley. But it is just now that the case grows worse by magnitude. Had this anguished father hoped for some relief from the spirit in possession of his son, he finds yet more disappointment for the spirit renews its rage seizes the son, spasms his body, casts him down headlong, writhing and racking him at the very master's feet. What can all this mean? If the strong man armed will not be allowed to keep his stolen goods in peace, then it seems he will attempt to retain them by violence. Oh, dear saint, dear saint, some of you know this scene from bitter experience. Some of you have gone often into that valley. You've gone alone. You've gone carrying one 
upon your own heart. Well nigh crushed with burden for their deliverance. You've gone with tears. You've gone upon your knees. Upon your face. You've gone crying. Crying in the same words of the Father. Lord. Lord, I brought unto thee my son, my daughter, my husband, my parent, my brethren. Lord, I brought them unto thee. You've gone until words have failed you and your strength is exhausted. You've gone in the day with beggings and in the night with weeping. And in it all, it seems that the nearer you carry them to the master, the worse they grow. The more often do they fall into seizures and spasms of sin and uncleanness. The more violent your prayers, the more violent their opposition. But sinner, some of you have also gone into this valley for yourself. You too have gone alone. Gone in an hour when a sense of your own helplessness has pressed your soul. Gone when you felt more than usually the power of sin and felt too something of a longing for the power of godliness to deliver you from it. You've gone when you have a thought, an overwhelming thought at the moment that there is a Christ that can save the chief of sinner's eye. Gone when seeing in that moment the vanity of everything else, you've heard in that same moment the voice say, Come. Come. Oh, but then... Then you find your passions enraged. Your iniquities swelling. You feel sin seize and spasm you more. You cast yourself with greater violence than ever into the fire of wickedness and into the waters of unbelief. And you think it is with you as it was with that man into whom seven devils had entered and an eighth had returned. Your last state is worse than the first. Ah, your case, your case, dear sinner, is indeed a desperate one. But while the child is in torments and the father is in an agony, the Lord speaks and he has one searching question. How long? How long? This is his final. How long? And what, again, we ask could be the meaning. Could not this question wait for a more convenient hour? Now, now, says the Father's heart, is the moment for acting. Delay, even for a moment, may be fatal. But what I say to you, 
There is a world of necessity in this question. One word in the original. How long? An absolutely necessary question. As absolutely necessary as his silence to that Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. So absolutely necessary was the conversation with this father. Yet while the father poured out to the Lord his son's wretched history. All the while he must have been casting his eyes aside once, twice, thrice and more. Down the child writhing in pain, captive to demonic fury, half dead already, looking again and again and again as though to say, but master, the child, the child. But there was a work, a prior work to be done. Work in the solitude of that place in that moment. A work of death. And a work of birth within that father's heart. How long? How long must come first? Because it must work in that father the fullest understanding of his own utter helplessness. How long? One word in our text. One word of question is met with one grief-stricken word of answering. Childhood. Infancy. How long? How long? He might well have replied, Always. Forever. And then he adds and adds to his own grief as well. He adds, Often. And then he adds another to it. Maniacally. That how long draws forth from the Father a confession of His absolute impotence. And this is the very thing intended by that question. And the necessity of it for that Father. Here, here then is the cause they must be apart. Here is the reason for this question at this moment the master has purposed toward death and life in this father's soul ere he return the child to the parent's arms saint dear saint is it not so with you also you come, you come bringing the child and find rather that the master for infinitely wise purposes is working in you. The sentence of death, the same death 
that this father must endure. A death to everything. A death even in some sense to the child in causing you to see and to feel and to know to its bottom your consummate weakness. Nay, your crushing powerlessness to do anything. You, you came thinking that it was about the child's great need. But infinite wisdom has discovered to you a more impressing imperative. It is as William Cleaver Wilkinson fitly described the necessity when he said to remove every other prop from the disciple's faith and let him sink however far, however far, until he rests and is strong, leaning full on the arm of his beloved. Cleaver said, it may be kind, but it is not wisely kind to have anything come between the believer and his Lord, not even the child. And it will be so without, with you also, sinner. He will work this helplessness, this death in you, ere he makes you to know anything of his life. In your soul. He will bring you to the confession. Of your absolute powerlessness. And that from a child. It has been so for you. In order to bring you full. To the end of yourself. He will have all of you. Or you shall have none of him. The father comes at last. After his answer to the master's question, to this excruciating plea. If thou canst do anything, help us. And thus we see that having renounced himself, having renounced himself, he has not yet fully come to Christ. There lingers on his tongue, and most especially in his heart, an if. An if born of lingering doubt as to the master's power. The evangelist certifies it to us when he gives priority of place to the pronoun in this text. Anything. If anything you can do, if anything you can do, help. Brimful of distress as it was, and though spoken from a heart desperate indeed for the benefit, yet it put a question upon Christ's authority and his wisdom in deferring the desired blessing. Oh, but now, now the work, the work in this father's soul as he waits, suspended between death and life, the work 
is to be consummated in us. And it will be accomplished by one more word. For you see, our translators have given us an admirable account of the words. But they have in a certain way struggled to express all meaning. For the master's reply is not so much a declaration as it is a question and a command. He speaks He speaks with the full authority of sovereign power, quoting the Father's own words back to Him as a tender rebuke and says, if you will, that word, if thou canst. He said to Him, as we might say it in our own English idiom, if thou canst, We might question incredulously, as I said, in our own idiom. The Master said, If thou canst, is not even in question. Believe! Believe! And all is possible. Believe, struggling saint. Believe, doubting sinner. Question not with Him if thou canst. He commands thee, believe. Oh, and just then, faith, heaven sent, sovereignly dispensed faith is born. Born in an instant. Born in this Father's feeble, fainting heart. Faith enough with trembling lips and faltering tongue to say with Charlotte Elliot, just as I am. Thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. How is it we are made to know that this faith is born and that Christ is enthroned in this Father's heart? Did you hear his profession? The Father's profession, did you hear it? I believe. Lord. Lord! Here is the bright line between death and life. Between faithlessness and believing. Lord! I believe! The command is obeyed. Christ's authority is fully confessed. The cry goes forth with no longer any if. Thou canst! Further proof do you require? Then see again this Father's last words. Help my unbelief. Only a moment ago, His cry was, help us. Now Christ has filled all of His sight. And His cry is, help me. Yes, sir. But wait, wait, there is yet another proof. 
he confesses the strength of that remaining unbelief and begs help against it. While faith and not faith wrestle within his breast, he thereby gives evidence of having passed from darkness into light, from death unto life. The worldling knows nothing of such a struggle. His is all quietness and peace because he is captive in his velvet chains. But this father now sees his great, no, his greatest misery, not in the torments of his son, but in the tumult of his unbelief. As the text declares, for in the original, it has helped me the unbelief. Help me. The unbelief. It has become to him a living and lively enemy. The unbelief. This unbelief. My unbelief. Help me. Fearful saint. Fearful saint. Fresh courage take. This warfare you expect at any moment to sink your frail boat is rather witness to your having made like confession with this Father. Lord, I believe. But let Dr. McLaren encourage you beyond my feeble capacity. Weak faith, says he, weak faith is faith. The trembling hand does touch. The cord may be slender as a spider's web that binds a heart to Jesus, but it does bind. The feeblest faith yet joins the soul to Christ. And sinner, this word is to you as well. Forever away with your ifs of doubt and despair. This is the word of command from the king. Believe. Confessing as we do that this gift is sovereignly dispensed. The decree is nevertheless unchanged and unchanging. Believe. He demands a faith that takes your whole soul off from the world and onto his infinite power however weak that faith may appear to you. It is a glorious truth, as we have oft been reminded, that the tree of blessing will not drop its fruit until shaken by the hand of prayer. But it is equally true that that hand must be nerved in every fiber of it by a living, acting faith before it may take hold of that mighty oak. But oh, I say to you further, if that hand, if your hand, seems yet too weak to grasp the truth, still, put forth your finger. Touch the hem of the Master's garment. Yes, sir. For even in this, is faith enough to obtain the blessing. Cast aside your beggar's garment of if thou canst. 
You shall need it no longer. The Master calls you aside today to treat with you of faith and life. Obey the divine command. As for this, if thou canst, believe. Believe.